Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you're listening in to this session as it's an interview I did with Mark Bregman about intellectual capital. And in this, we really focused in on how we could convert knowledge into innovation. Mark has had decades of experience in IT, startups, and venture capital investing. So we're really able to tap into his wealth of knowledge during the session. And this is what was known as one of the huddles held as part of a week of content for the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. And it was held for the fellows, so you'll hear lots of references to that. And a big shout out to the entire Huddles team, as well as all those involved from EHF who were putting it on. If you enjoyed this session, then don't forget that there's more than 250 other episodes in the back catalog. Typically, I do long-form interviews with inspiring Kiwis about what they do and why. Now let's get into this session with a welcome from Alex Vega. hope that everyone is okay in whatever time zone you are. So welcome. Uh, this is a Huddles Masterclass in the name of the team. Uh, thank you so much for joining. We're going to discuss uh, intellectual capital. So the, the idea of the show session and asking for Mark and Stephen their time for us to pick their brains and learn a wee bit more about their, their perspective uh, into this market is to figure out a wee bit more about how to transform knowledge and invention into innovation. The whole idea here is to have interview session as Stephen in his podcast is a master on doing it, will conduct this, this uh, talk with Mark. So I'll let both of them introduce themselves. Stephen, for yours. Kia tato, ko opuke te maunga, ko rakaia te awa, no ototahi ao, ko mo toku whano, ko Stephen toku ingoa. Greetings, everyone. It's wonderful to have you on this session. I have been really excited about this. And we get the chance to have an amazing discussion. We're going to have a deep dive. Um, it's going to be in the format of an interview. And um, we have Mark Bregman here as well. So, Mark, I'm hoping before we get into the detail of what we're going to talk about, I would be really curious to hear just a really brief overview from you on your background and your history, and particularly tying it to New Zealand, because I know that you've been involved in New Zealand for quite a long time. Could we start there? So I am a physicist by background and thought I was going to an academic path, got a PhD and joined IBM to do physics research, very far removed from their business, but found that the technology draw was so strong that I went to the dark side, as my colleague said, and I went into the semiconductor business within IBM and then from there into the systems, computer systems, and then into software. And uh, as long ago as the late 80s, I started through, through my business connection at IBM, traveling a lot to Australia and then ultimately also to New Zealand to meet with the very, at that time, very few enterprise customers in New Zealand. I think there were only four, uh, Bank of New Zealand, uh, uh, Air New Zealand. There was the uh, predecessor to uh, Fonterra uh, and one other, um, the Telecom New Zealand, I guess. And that was it. Those were the four enterprise customers. But it got me interested in New Zealand. And I'm also, I was a very avid sailor at that time. And so that brought me back many, many times. In the late 90s, I uh, was there in New Zealand for the America's Cup. Unfortunately, I was part of the New York Yacht Club Syndicate, which did not do well that time. Uh, I've since corrected my allegiances. So I'm now a supporter of Team New Zealand. Um, but I uh, ended up buying a vineyard property down in central Otago, investing in some property down there. 
and that tied me even more so to the country. Uh, over the years, as I went through different roles and, and moved to the West Coast, actually, to Silicon Valley in uh, 2002, I um, have watched the evolution of the startup economy or the you know, entrepreneurial activities in the tech economy in New Zealand with great interest. And you know, over the years, I would frequently get emails from people saying that you know, a friend of theirs, so-and-so is going to be in San Francisco. Would you meet with him? He has a small company he's starting. And so I did a lot of very informal uh, interaction with early stage New Zealand companies but I could see that developing. And so a couple of years ago, when I left my last corporate role and decided I really wanted to involve myself with early stage companies, it seemed very natural to focus on New Zealand. Also, because being in Silicon Valley, I've become very disenchanted with the Silicon Valley venture model. Mm. So that's sort of my, my connection, both to New Zealand and to early stage tech. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the reason I asked about that is I think it's really important to ground our discussion and what's coming in the fact that you have been visiting New Zealand for a long time, um, because it would be easy to say, well, this is sort of an outsider's view, but actually you've been coming here, you've been watching and observing. So just to make that really clear from the beginning, our topic is intellectual capital moving from knowledge to innovation. So maybe the first question I have is, what are we talking about when we look at intellectual capital? You know, we've purposely not used the word intellectual um, property, IP, um, in your mind, what are, we, what are we talking about when we're meaning intellectual capital? Well, it, it, it's interesting, as you said, because I think when we first started to formulate this session, we used the word intellectual property. And I think the first question that came up is, oh, do we know a good lawyer who can join us? And as we thought about it some more, it became clear that it's actually intellectual capital, which is a different word that really has more to do with the heart of the information and knowledge and, uh, and I think about, I've spent my career actually thinking about innovation as a process in large companies and in small companies. And I have a sort of simple model, which is all innovation starts with some knowledge. It's based on some knowledge. Now that knowledge could have come out of a physics lab at a university or a hospital, or it could come out of historic knowledge that's known by people who've lived somewhere a long time. And for example, a lot of the knowledge that the, the Maori and the Pacifica Islanders have is, is that kind of very important, uh, often intangible knowledge. It's not intellectual property the way we think about it, but it's definitely intellectual capital. And to create an innovation, so going to the other end of that pipeline, in my mind, an innovation has to be something that has a positive impact in the marketplace. If it doesn't have that impact, it's not an innovation. It's just, maybe it's an idea. Maybe it's even an invention. There are plenty of things which are inventions and patented and they're intellectual property and they never impact the marketplace. I, I know that personally because I filed many patents when I was at IBM and most of them never have impacted anything. So it's this chain of taking that knowledge and helping connect it to an idea, formulate an idea or trigger an idea, and then have it turned into an invention, which is actually something real that you can imagine doing or building or delivering, and ultimately taking it through a much more complex process, which includes not just the idea, not just the in invention, but how do you take it to market? How do you satisfy customers? How do you deliver it? All of those things that makes it have an impact in the marketplace. But all of that collectively is reliant on that initial intellectual capital. That's the fuel that creates ultimately an innovation. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think when I think about businesses, you know, we, we use the word capital a lot in terms of finances. 
and we even use it with social capital. But to think of intellectual capital in this way, I think it's a helpful way to think of it. Um, I want to mention as well, for everybody listening, um, we obviously have the chat function. So feel free to drop questions as we're talking. We're going to be bouncing off each other and going in many different directions. But as we're talking, feel free to write in questions, and we'll come back to them um, as we progress through. You, you know, Stephen, since we spoke the last time, um, I did a little bit more research and, I, and I, I, I don't know, I haven't learned very much uh, Maori, but I did find a very interesting word in Maori, which is uh, mataranga, which is knowledge, wisdom, understanding, skill. It's that idea that I was just talking about of that sort of formation, intellectual capital. And if you look in the, in the dictionary, in the, the Maori dictionary, there are a lot of compound words that start with that and have a secondary word, and they mean the things that we normally think about in Western science, biology, physics, chemistry, psychology, et cetera. And I find that so fascinating that the actual root of even those disciplines comes from this concept of knowledge, but it's not knowledge in the, in the academic sense. It could be experience or skill or something that's intrinsic, mm. that's been developed a, a, over years. I think that's such a valuable point, and I'd love to come back to it in a little bit, because yeah. one of the questions that I've got, and we, we talked about this, is yeah. can you own such knowledge? You know, mm -hmm. at what point does it become something that is sellable, and should it be something that is capable of being sold? I have some pretty strong views on this, so I'm looking forward to coming back to it. I yes. think you're absolutely right, though. New Zealand offers a unique perspective on the world because we have Te Ao Māori, which is a much wider conception of the world than a traditional Western perspective, which is more focused on the individual. And um, when you look at Te Ao Māori and Mataranga Māori, it, it's all of a sudden there's different conceptions as well that, that you need to take into account. Um, just coming back to the intellectual capital point, I'm just keen, because you've been involved in innovating, you've been at the cutting edge in technology companies. Can we talk a little bit about just the, the beginnings, the seeds, the developing the intellectual capital? Um, what's been your experience of that? And how, how can organizations go about fostering an environment where that you know, flourishes? Well, let me talk about it first in the in the form which has been most of my experience, because I've been mostly working in a very typical Western model, uh, and then try to apply it to this other opportunity. You know, in in traditional Western model, and this is true in the in New Zealand when you look at the universities or the research institutions, there are institutional organizations that are responsible for knowledge. These are research groups filled with we often say it almost pejoratively as an entrepreneur, oh, the academics. Uh, who are generating that knowledge. But there's often a mismatch or a gap between those, those institutions and their knowledge and the ability to take an idea from there and turn it into an invention and ultimately to an innovation. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the early 2000s when I was first in the Bay Area, working with some of the major universities here in the San Francisco area, Berkeley, Stanford, UC Santa Cruz, UC Davis, because there was a real barrier. They were treating that knowledge actually as intellectual property in the negative sense that I described earlier, it was something to be held onto and not let go of. And therefore, if you were a professor and you wanted to take that IP and, and commercialize it, there were a lot of barriers and it was slowing things down. So we worked with the universities to get them to understand that knowledge is much more valuable when it's shared. And if you don't share it, you can never actually get the value for it. And I think that that's still a problem in New Zealand. There's a very uh, often siloed nature 
between the universities and the research institutes and the entrepreneurs and the, those who want to create value in the marketplace. And even within those institutions, there's often a siloed nature between different departments and so on. So one of the things that I want to work on, and this is an area where I think EHF, many of the fellows in EHF can help, is how do we help educate the people that are leading those organizations to see a new model that can be more open? Now, when you talk about traditional knowledge, it's even more important because in the same sense that the universities are protecting IP because of the financial value, the Maori are protecting it because it's their ownership. It's theirs. It's theirs. They've, they've, they've developed it over the centuries. It's their tribal knowledge. And they don't want to lose it. And they don't want to give it up. And they don't want it to be polluted. So how can we build the relationship with sources of knowledge, in this case, perhaps on the, on the Maori side or the Pacifica side, so that they can get the benefit of sharing that knowledge in a way that leads to innovation? Yeah, you mentioned a word there, which was openness. And, and, and I want to draw from that maybe the word collaboration, you know, yeah. the, the, the willingness to share your ideas. Um, is, there, is there someone somewhere that's doing this really well that we could look to and learn from? Um, one of the questions in the chat, which I'm just going to pull up because it's relevant here, is, um, you know, looking at the difference between universities, research institutions and industry and the fact that maybe there's not a great link between the two. Um, but how do you balance that openness and willingness to share with then commercializing? Well, I think that there, there are two things come to mind. One is, I'll just tell this anecdote. There's a, uh, he's passed away now, but there was a very well-known uh, computer scientist named John Koch, who invented essentially what's called reduced instruction set computing. Uh, he was a computer scientist at IBM when I was first there and I was doing my physics experiment. He was, I thought he was an old guy. He was probably my age now, but at the time I thought he was old. He would come into my lab and putter around and ask questions and I didn't know who he was. And he would go away and he'd come back a week later having obviously done some more reading and have some deeper questions. And about the third time he came in, I asked who, he, you know, someone else, who is that? And they told me, and I said, well, why does he care? Well, I found out many years later that he was famous for this. He actually, um, there was a, a talk given late in his life called uh, or an article written called John Cock Firestarter. And he went around the laboratory planting ideas and he never cared who got credit for it, even though they came from him, he shared them. His benefit was seeing that idea reach fruition. And a, a mentor of mine who knew him very well said, who's a physicist, so he used this physical physics term. He said, you know, credit is not a conserved quantity. In other words, it's not a finite quantity. Everybody can get credit. He felt good when he saw that you took his idea and took it further. That gave him, he got credit for that. He, it wasn't as if you took the credit away. And I think that's one of the challenges that institutions like industry and universities, they play, a, they, they play in a world where they think it's a zero, zero sum game and it's not. It's more of an infinite game in the sense that it's gonna go on and on and on and benefit in the long run. Something which I think very much resonates with the multi-generational view that for example, that the Maori have. Mm. So the challenge is how do you uh, provide the right um, recognition, rewards, maybe even financial rewards back upstream to the providers of the knowledge or the idea or the invention? And that's, that's a challenge. And the experience I've had with doing that with industry and universities is 
much more mechanical in the sense of figuring out real mechanisms, contractual mechanisms. One of the things we found we had to do was not just open up the access to the knowledge, but also open up the pathway for the people. So a faculty member at Stanford could take the risk to go join a startup. And if it failed, he hadn't taken a one-way, gone through a one-way door. Stanford might say, oh, well, you've been out of the university for three or four years. Maybe you're no longer as current as a physicist, but maybe you now have new unique experience that's valuable to our students. We'll bring you back in a slightly different role as we created a, a title called Professor of the Practice, which was different than the academic path. And that created a much more um, integrated and fluid connection between universities and industry which is good and bad. It means the boundaries are much less clear today than they used to be. And sometimes that's confusing for the purely academic people. Yeah, that's really interesting. A couple of points to pick up on. The first is one of the reasons that I joined EHF and I'm sure many of us is that we saw that there was a little bit of a different mindset. So it'll be really fascinating to see if, if as fellow fellows, can we bring the attitude of kaitiakitanga and stewardship, you know, looking beyond the individual thinking intergenerationally and then applying it to what you're talking about, which would be, you know, actual intellectual capital. Is it something that we could more freely and openly share? Um, we have another comment in there, somebody saying Tesla is a great example where they open source some of their battery technology, which is quite interesting. Um, but I guess it is this tension, isn't it? Because for better or worse, my profession in the legal profession, we over-legalize this type of thing and we have patents and we have terms that, you know, you have to register them. Um, I'm often reminded of the Wright brothers and my great grandfather attended one of their first airplane trials and they went on to fight in litigation for the rest of their lives trying to protect their airplane idea if only they just made the best airplanes they could, collaborated with others, they probably wouldn't have had as much frustration as they ended up having in their lifetime. So just an example. Well, let, me, let me go back to that Tesla example. I was with the board of directors of Ford Motor Company uh, having a talk. They were in Silicon Valley trying to learn how to think like Silicon Valley. And it was right at the time within a few weeks of when uh, Elon Musk had declared that all of the patents, not just the battery technology, all of the patents would be freely licensed to anybody from Tesla. And so I asked them about this. And one of the people who was there said immediately, well, it must be worthless. Otherwise, why would he do that? And I said, well, I, I haven't looked at them. I, I don't know, but he's a pretty smart guy. The company's doing really well. It's hard for me to believe that all of his patents are worthless. And finally, about two weeks later, one of the other people who was there, not a board member, but one of the technical leads from Ford who was sitting in the room, sent me an email. He said, I've looked at those patents. They're actually not bad. They're very good. So can we talk about this? And we got on the phone and it's, it was clear that there's, uh, and this is something I've seen in my career. There was a, a almost zero sum model that traditional corporates have. Ford's attitude was either we have that intellectual capital or someone else has it and whoever has it will win the Wright brothers. If we protect this, we can win. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk's view was, I'm going to win because I'm going to move faster. I'm going to compete. I'm going to continue to improve. I'm going to gain from the whole community and I'm going to add to the community. And so open source in the open source software world has that same mentality behind it. And I remember in the early nineties at IBM, when we were first seeing open source and our strategy was 
we were competing with Microsoft. They had, they had Windows NT, we had OS2. And we finally said to the corporate leaders, because I was in the research division, we said, look, your normal strategy is to figure out what you can do to kill Microsoft and win with OS2. That's very hard, maybe impossible. But what happens if nobody wins in the sense of owning it? That's actually the, the, the worst, the best thing is we win. The worst thing is we lose. The second best thing is we all win because now we can share it. And that was a very, became a very fundamental shift in the thinking. And I think that's the kind of thinking we need to bring to what are frankly, and I don't mean this in a, in a pejorative sense, it's just true, relatively ancient institutions like the university system, which hasn't thought about this in a new way for generations. It's really interesting. It's fascinating to me actually, because New Zealand stands as a country which has the potential to do things differently. And one of the comments Rosalie's added in here is, you know, could there be a fresh model which was applied here in Aotearoa where we actually did have more of an open sourcing of R&D, more of an open collaboration approach rather than the old mindset, the old paradigm of thinking, which is I developed it, I own it, I get the benefit. That's quite an interesting thought to think about. And just picking up on your infinite finite games, um, I think Simon Sinek did his book a couple of years ago, two years ago about that. And that's an interesting read, isn't it? For people, um, if yes. they're curious about what are we talking about when we're talking about infinite and finite games. But I think that might be another um, interview. That's a whole other theme. But you know, there's, it does bring up one other interesting, another book, which is quite old now, which is called The um, uh, Cathedral and the Bazaar. And it talks about open source software and it talks about the brittle nature of highly organized, which was the, the cathedral built by this church that had required the whole organizational structure of the church. It was very siloed. And you go around Europe, you see lots of ruins because churches went out of favor at some, in some town, they lost support. The bazaar, on the other hand, is self-organized and goes on for thousands of years. And it's, it doesn't, there's not a central control of the ownership of it from an intellectual point of view or an operational point of view. And I think there's also a very important message there to how we might think differently about creating some of these innovation engines. So Mark, let me push you a little bit on this point. What, in having been involved in this for decades, having um, been involved in all the different areas, right from research through to commercializing, through to investing in companies that are doing this, what is the fresh model that we could adopt here? Is there any key principles that you think would set it apart? Well, I, I think the first one is throw away the zero sum game. It's not about I win, you lose. It's about how can I make the world better? And if you benefit from that, that's great. I benefit, we both benefit, that's even better. And so this idea, which has been at the, at the heart of a lot of Silicon Valley for years, which is let's all work together to make the pie bigger. It doesn't mean we're not competing, but we're not competing in this zero sum game trying to kill the other guy, the other team. We're just trying to make the whole playing field bigger. So that's the first one. And I think that resonates or could resonate well in New Zealand. The second thing is um, understanding that these, at these different stages, whether it's the knowledge or the idea or the actual invention or the actual commercialization innovation pipeline, there are different levels of competition. There should be almost no competition at the knowledge level. And historically, the thing that I think has attracted people to the academic world is that in principle, although not in actuality, it's a wide open intellectual 
playground. Now, of course, professors are competing for positions and funding and all that, but the re that's the reality. But the concept is it's wide open. Um, at the other extreme, when you're down to selling a product in the marketplace and you want the customer to buy your innovation and not the other company's innovation, of course, there's competition. But along that path, there are different ways to play the game. And I think they all can fit together. Um, I think the other thing that has to happen is, and this is on the investment side, investors have to not just take a long-term view, because it's, it's hard to get an investor. It's hard for me to go to a potential investor and say, Stephen, why don't you invest in my fund? And in four generations, it'll give you a great return. Well, you're not going to do that because you're not going to be around. But, but we could get investors to understand this idea of building a bigger playing field and gaining that, as opposed to, I want to invest in the one unicorn that's going to generate a thousand X return by killing off all the other competitors. And I think that is a different model than we've seen. The other thing is there's a lot to be learned from the experience outside New Zealand, not necessarily to be emulated. I think we talked about this the other day. The, and I've heard people say, well, if we could just get New Zealand to be like Silicon Valley, wouldn't that be great? And my answer is no, that'd be horrible. That's why I'm not an investor in Silicon Valley. I don't want to go create it somewhere else. But there are certainly things we can learn from Silicon Valley. Mm. It's not the same thing as doing all of them. Sometimes you learn not to do something mm. from seeing the experience. So that's all well and good, but I'm a startup, let's just say, and I've developed something new. At what point do I need to shut my door and have it as a trade secret? Um, I, so I work as a lawyer, but often I'm advising clients probably don't patent what you've got, just keep it secret. Um, it, where do you draw the line there? How does that get decided? I, it's interesting because I, I come down on both sides of this. I mean, there are certainly a lot of cases where today I would say putting your effort into patenting something is, is just not worthwhile. It's a lot of work. In most cases, it could be avoided. And in almost every case, if you're an early stage company, the, whoever it is on the other side of that, if you end up in the lawsuit, has bigger, you know, deeper pockets. And you're going to lose not because you're not right, but because you just don't have enough money. On the other hand, there are certain places where if you have a unique enough idea or invention and a broad enough set of claims, it can be very powerful. But there's a second question, which is how do you choose to use your patents? The classic thing people think about is one of two things. I'm going to use my patents to prevent others from competing in my market. And that's very hard. And, and also actually counter to what I was just saying about making the pie bigger. The other way that people look at it is to say, I need these patents so that someone else can't prevent me from being in this market because they might have other patents. They're going to come after me and I could say, well, I've got these, let's have some horse trading. And a good example of that two different industries, and this goes back looking at them probably 20 years ago and they've evolved since then, but 20 or 30 years ago, the semiconductor industry and the pharmaceutical industry had dramatically different ways of approaching patents and intellectual property. In the semiconductor industry, pretty much everything we patented, we shared with everyone else through cross-licensing arrangements. And it wasn't always free. We would weigh that, we'd balance it. And we'd say, well, we have more, we have better patents than you do. So you should pay us some money, but we're gonna all put them in a pool where we can all use them after we've done that. However, the pharmaceutical industry at that time jealously guarded their patents to the point where there were certain innovations that could not come to market because critical elements were owned by competing companies who wouldn't share them. And that slowed down the whole industry. So I think today with the advent of open source in the software world uh, has 
caused people to say, you can actually build a business without owning all the IP. That's a unique, that was a unique breakthrough. Um, and people are starting to see that in other areas. But as an investor, I do look at companies and worry if they might get blocked by another competitor with IP that they don't control. Um, or if they do have the ability to create really masterful, valuable IP, it's probably worth doing that. But then the question is in how you utilize it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, there's some comments coming in the chat here as well that you know investors will look at startups that have protected their IP, um, and yeah. you know so that it is a factor if you're a startup and you're just beginning and you're coming up with a new and innovative way. It's it's this balancing, I guess, isn't it? Um, for the Kiwis on the call, they'll appreciate this. So I have an accent, but I grew up in New Zealand, and one of my favorite treats as a child was Georgie pie. So that won't make sense to most people listening, but Georgie Pie was a, a company which produced basically mince pies in different ways of um, having your you know, traditional pie. And it was bought by McDonald's, um, as far as I know, or restaurant brands, because they were worried about the competition that was being introduced by this drive-through takeaway pies. So they stifled the competition. They got rid of it by buying the IP associated with it. Um, so it's just a kind of quirky example of kind of what you're talking about there, that it, it doesn't actually lead to more um, benefits for society. It's, it's kind of funneling it back. And Well, and I see this comment from Brian on that idea that pat investors will invest in a startup that has protected its IP. That was very true a few years ago. It's less true today. It's it, depending exactly what you're, I mean, it's still true, for example, in the pharmaceutical business. If you're developing small molecule chemistry for cancer treatment, you'd better have a protection around that. But in a lot of other areas of technology, that's less the point or less the case that it used to be because investors also see, and this touches on another comment, the cost of patenting is very expensive. The, um, the process is time consuming and for an early stage company can be a huge distraction from moving fast. And many times moving fast is a better competitive advantage than having the patent. And so that is changing. It differs by sector. I want yeah. to shift the conversation because we haven't touched on something that we talked about at the very beginning. And I'll make sure we do this, which is the Mataranga Maori and, and indigenous knowledge. So not just specific to New Zealand either. This is across you know, First Nations around the world. Um, I want to put a scenario to you and then let's just riff off of that. Um, but yeah. there's, there's lots of medical knowledge. There's lots of understanding of food and plants, which is held by the Kalmatua or the elders within um, indigenous world. How do we approach that? <laughs> is that an open enough question? Um, my problem with it is that if you, can, if you can monetize it and you can say, well, that knowledge that's indigenous knowledge, which has been developed over hundreds, thousands of years, that is worth $55,000. And now Stephen Moe owns it. That seems to me to, to be perpetuating many things that probably those of us on this call would agree should not take place. Can you offer your thoughts or your perspective on that? Well, let, let me give you a, a, a bit of a parable, perhaps, or, or an example that, that's not real, but I think it'll get across the point. So imagine that there is indigenous knowledge about, I don't know, some kind of unique mineral deposits in a region of land 
that may be controlled by those indigenous people. These, these actually has, has been a big problem in the colonial era. Then you get somebody who comes along and says, wow, that mineral is really valuable to us. You like it because it's useful in some ceremony, but we have a commercial use for it. We want to give you money and dig up your land and take that mineral and exploit it. And sometime later that those indigenous people look at it and say, well, we got this money, which probably by now has been spent over time and we no longer have the land and what do we get for it? So the models have to be very different and they have to be more participatory, collaborative, I think is a word you used, which is how can we find a model in which that knowledge can, they can play through the entire value chain and not just get paid off at that first link because that payment isn't sustainable. It doesn't have the longevity. And in many cases, I think it disenfranchises them from the real value to the world, which gives them benefit when they see that, they can gain some benefit from it. Mm. So it, it does require a different way of approaching the use of, or the adoption, let me say, of indigenous knowledge. I think we've got to change our vocabulary because the classic way we would say that is, well, how are we going to exploit that knowledge? Now that word has two meanings, but the meaning that I'm thinking of here is not a good one. And that's historically been what happened. The real question is how do we help everybody in the value chain gain benefit from the use of that knowledge? Mm -hmm. And, and this I think fits with a lot of the other things we talked about uh, in other contexts, the sustainability of that knowledge. It's not a one-time use. It's like, oh, I know where this is, dig up the ground. That's a kind of, that's not a sustainable use of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the, I, I don't have an answer, but I think we have to find a new approach. And I think to the extent we can find that approach, New Zealand is both a very good, a good place to try to find that because we have all the elements and it can be impactful globally if we do discover a better approach. It's not unique to New Zealand. Well, I like, I like that answer. And one of the biggest things I like about it is that you didn't have an answer and I don't have an answer either, but I think this conversation is one that we have to have because if, if we could go back in a time machine and look at what was going on in the 1840s, 1850s, you look at the land which was alienated and oftentimes payments went to individuals or, or groups and you think, how could, how could that have been permitted? You know, with looking back. And I just fear for the fact that the very same thing could end up happening around indigenous knowledge when it comes to things which do have real value, particularly as we grow more and more aware of the value of, of food, for example. So I'm, I'm based in Christchurch and, you know, people don't really realize how many varieties of kumara there are, which is like the sweet potato. Um, and I'm sure that there's knowledge around the uses and, and, and what it can be used for, shouldn't be used for, all of those things. So I think this is an actual live conversation. And I'd be fascinated if people have thoughts in the chat as well. And keep putting questions there because we're going we're gonna to come back to that. So, I mean, thinking, Mark, then of, of the future, and, you know, you've obviously been to New Zealand over the years. And I'm just really curious, I guess, in your plans and thinking about what you'll be looking to, to bring to the conversation here. Um, yeah, how, how, how can we help it to be a more generative conversation rather than, a, you know, thinking of each of us on this call as, as activators, as ambassadors for the thoughts and ideas here, it's, it's not just us listening. How can we be having these sorts of conversations and, and spreading the word about what we're talking about? Well, I have 
lots of ideas on that. I think from my own, from my own point of view, uh, in a very pragmatic sense, because I'm trying to build an operating investment fund, I'm looking for ideas or small businesses, companies that have a reason to be coming from New Zealand. And so there has to be some connection to New Zealand. Now that connection could be that there's some, you know, deep capability in a particular narrow scientific field that's very strong in one of the universities on a global basis. That may be enough reason, or it could be that it connects to New Zealand through the more, through the broader kind of uh, historic and uh, indigenous knowledge. But it has to have some direct link to New Zealand because otherwise, to my mind, it's very hard. That's almost the intellectual capital is something that's tied to New Zealand then. Um, and then it has to, we have to help build out those whole chain of taking that intellectual capital, that idea, that knowledge, and then somebody has to create an idea. So an example I used earlier was imagine that in, in the neighborhood where I live, uh, it's, it was known by the native people many, many years ago that a particular area called the Altamont Pass in California is very windy. They knew that. And no one did anything about it except complain for many years. And then at one point, someone came along and said, wow, I bet we could build windmills there and do something useful. But at the early days, windmills were used to grind grain or power local equipment. And that was a bad location to do that. And nothing came of it. Later, someone had an invention and said, wait, we can make a windmill that generates electricity. And now we have wind farms there. So that took a long time. But it was based on that essentially indigenous knowledge of where were the best places to put that. So how we build that, how we build those connections, and they are really connections, is, is one thing. On the more general question, I think there's a, I think we need to have, and I've talked to some other folks in the, uh, in the EHF about doing this, create a dialogue. And dialogue is a very specific thing to me. It's not just to me. I mean, it's a term. There's a very good book, which I recommend everyone read, called On Dialogue by David Bohm. And he talks about what a dialogue is. Dialogue is getting people together to have a conversation, a dialogue, but I'm not there to convince you of my idea. You're not there to convince me of my idea, of your idea. We're there to share ideas with no expectation. But guess what? Miraculous things come out of that because of that no expectation. And I think we, could, we need to do that around the New Zealand context for innovation. How do we include the different sources of knowledge, including the Maori, including the Pacifica, including farmers, including everybody who's not traditionally caught up in the tech or uh, let me just call it startup knowledge through innovation economy. And then also how do we include people from the universities? Maybe their minds will be opened up as they hear about this because they're not there to sell you their idea or to hear you sell them your idea. So I think that's a, a good opportunity uh, as, a, as a step we could take that would start to be more generative, as you said, as opposed to just some people in the back room come up with an idea and try to sell it to everyone else. Mm. And really what you're talking about, see, this is, I'm just trying to bring it home for what does this mean for us as individuals in this moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really unique about Edmund Hillary Fellowship is that it's bringing together people from what traditionally might be called silos. You know, you've yeah. got people from universities, industry, investors, huge variety of people all being thrown, I like to think of as they're colliding together and the sparks that come off of those collisions. Because um, if that could then be recreated in other environments in New Zealand, imagine the innovation that would result if we got out of the siloed thinking of, well, 
I'm an accountant, I talk to other accountants. I'm a social scientist, I talk to other social scientists, right? Well, and, and not only that, the innovation wouldn't only be in the formation of new startups, for example. Mm-hmm. It might be in how do we address the housing problem? How do we address, address the problems of underserved communities? Those are innovation challenges as well. But the people working in those areas tend to think of innovation in their segment, their sector, as being fundamentally a different process than it is to invent a new drug. And I don't believe that. I think they're part of the same process, but they haven't connected because they use different language and they come from a different context and they don't get together and discuss that. Yeah, I think um, Rosalie's put a comment there, you know, New Zealand traditionally has been based on a trust economy where reputation generates a sense of trust. And I'm always in these sorts of sessions, I'm always trying to think like, yeah, it's a good discussion. Yeah, but so what, you know? What does it mean for us as individuals? And my challenge to everybody who's listening is you can have these conversations with everybody else within the fellowship. We can start having more open dialogue. We can start sharing ideas in a way that maybe we wouldn't have traditionally thought about doing. I think that's a good point. Um, we've got a comment here from Rio. Thank you that for that. He's saying, uh, uh, this is a great session. I agree in regards to indigenous knowledge. I think pathways and meaningful collaborations are key to progressing the knowledge value. Um, and IP in a general sense was explained to me as being individual ownership, whereas indigenous knowledge was considered collective and therefore by default was not covered as clearly because no one individual could claim outright ownership. The result being that many indigenous names, plants, concepts are appropriated broadly because the law doesn't appear to cover this specifically. And then there's a question there, has there been any progress in this overall concept or examples globally? Well, you know, I would actually... And, and, you know, I'm putting this, I'm, I'm using this example because of my own personal experience. There may be even better ones. But if I think about what's happened in the world of open source software, it used to be very much the same thing, that a company would own the element, the software. And with open source, there are many individuals who are all contributing. They're putting their, their own personal intellectual capital into the product. That product is not owned by any one of them it's kind of a collection of threads all woven together to create something of great value. And then, and and they, you know, it's not like if I were to write some subroutine or some piece of code that got put into an open source software, I'd get a fraction of the royalties. No, that's not how it works. It's up to some other organizations to bet, to uh, take advantage of that and commercialize it and make some money. And then what do they do? They want, because they know that I was one of the people who helped create it. They might want to hire me, to help them take it further. They might want to invest in a university group that's contributed quite a bit. So there is, to your earlier point, a lot of it is reputational. And um, I think we've seen this even more recently in, although it's a little bit obscured because of the mechanics of it, but if you look at the way that um, blockchain has developed and these various technologies around blockchain, they were very much the same way they created huge amounts of money because of the mechanism of, of, of cryptocurrency. But that's, a, that's obscuring the fact that they're actually collaborative efforts by people who were really choosing to contribute their skill to a project they believed in to get the outcome. And so I think there is the, I don't know, the um, beginnings of something here we could take further. Well, just to throw in a practical example, um, in my work as a lawyer, traditionally law firms put out their own thought leadership pieces 
and it's like branded very well. You know, this is our law firm's IP and technology and, and, you know, come to us because we're experts in this. And what I've been trying to upset that a little bit by collaborating with lawyers from other law firms and saying, actually, this is such an important issue that law firms have come together to write about it. You know, whether it's um, steward ownership of business structures yes. or um, social enterprise models and impact for the future. Like, I think that's a way, and again, just trying to make this super practical, what does that mean for each of you who are listening in your context? How could you be collaborating with people that you traditionally might think of as being competitors? Because the more that we can do that, the, the faster the boat's going to go, in my view. I think you're right. And, and I think we have to explore those models. I mean, as I said earlier, I don't have an answer. I, I have a lot of observation and experience as do many other people. And I think if we bring those people together in a dialogue where we're not just trying to mold it to our vision, but we're trying to create a vision, shared vision, we would have better luck. And I think that's an opportunity to do that. And I think, you know, the fellow, the EHF as a fellowship is a fantastic um, melting pot to do that because we have such a diverse group of people together. Yeah, I agree completely. And then in the chat, I'm just picking up some themes yeah. here. And um, it's kind of echoing something that I said here, but um, one of the big questions is how do we take the more philosophical conversation to first actionable steps? I think of yes. the discussion in terms of Bell Labs, which is an incredible example of innovation and IP. I guess my challenge, to, like I said to each of you is, who's somebody that you could collaborate with? Or what's that idea that's rattling around in the back of your head that maybe if you had a collaborator or somebody working with you, you would actually finish writing that white paper that has mm. been sitting there for a long time. And it might actually advance discussion about whatever it is that you happen to be involved in. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mark? Well, I, I, I don't have a, a quick answer to that. I mean, I have, I have lots of white papers that are half written on my, <laughs> my computer, but... Uh, where collaboration would be helpful. But I do think that it might be something where, you, you know, one of the powers that we have, I think, as an organization or as a group is something I've, I've seen as very powerful and I think is often overlooked. We have convening power. If we wanted to get together a, a group of people from the universities, from the EWIs, some of the members from EHF and others, to really have a dialogue on, on a topic. We'd have to frame it more narrowly because we don't want to get blown up. So that there, so the outcome of it is not actionable in the sense of what we're going to go do next, but it forms a common understanding from which the actions can come out. And I think um, that is something which is tangible and concrete as a first step, but it's not trying to take the full step to the end point. That would be too big. I think we would fail. Um, we're getting towards the end of our session here. So if there's any other questions or themes that you wanted to be talked about, then um, feel free to type them in there. Um, you, go ahead. I, oh, well, I see Tina's comment, and I actually have thought about this quite a bit, which is she's, she asked, how can brand New Zealand be quantified as an intangible asset value on the balance sheets of New Zealand ventures? I, I'd word that a little bit differently, but it's um, I do think that New Zealand has the ability to create a an innovation brand. You, you're probably all aware that um, Ireland, or, um, Israel has spent a lot of money branding Startup Nation. They, they're, they're, their cycling team is called Startup Nation. I mean, they've been really focused on that. But I think the real difference is 
we could almost focus on this, the New Zealand being an innovation nation. And the distinction, which was have to take some time would be a lot of what we're talking about here, which is how do we create innovation in this holistic way, as opposed to startup nation, which is all about creating startups, which get sold for lots of money and people get rich because they were investors. I mean, I'm trying to make a distinction, a broad distinction here. Mm. That I think could be really valuable because in many areas, and this is partly why I use it almost as a filter for my own investments. If a company that starts in New Zealand and tries to enter the bigger world can explain why they came from New Zealand, that is a connection to brand New Zealand. It could be anything from, I mean, a great company that I'm looking at right now, you may know is called Honeybee. One of the EHF fellows is the founder. Here's a company that's doing synthetic biology. Why the hell is that in New Zealand? Well, there's lots of great synthetic biology all around the world. Well, and they're building a, a polymer. Well, there's lots of people with polymer chemists all around the world, but they're linked to a particular genetic trait of a particular variety of bee. And New Zealand is one of the world's leaders in bee science. In fact, Edmund Hillary was a beekeeper and they have deep expertise in the universities in this area of synthetic biology. And so one could imagine as part of what they do, their brand is almost why, why do you want to use this sustainable bioplastic? Because it comes from New Zealand where, we're, where we understand sustainability. We understand the origin of this. It, it probably couldn't have come from anywhere else because we have deep knowledge, which was at the root of it. That's part of that branding comment. That's part of what makes an innovation nation. Somebody comes to me and says, and I, I apologize up front if I offend anybody, hey, I've got this great idea for, I mean, I'm in, you know, Taronga, and I have this great idea to do a new SaaS-based dating app, I'm probably going to say, you know what? I just don't see how that's taking advantage of leveraging anything around brand New Zealand. Anybody could do that. That's not interesting to me, as opposed to the you know, humblebee, which has that deep root. Well, this would be fascinating um, to, to watch what gets invested in as well and, and what is scalable, what can go global and, and what is distinctive and unique to New Zealand and how that gets captured in terms of value and, and the propositions. Mark Trevor said something which, which resonates with me and I, I just wanna say it because I think it's so critical. He said, uh, he likes the comment, the focus on economic value versus financial value. And I think they are distinct. And I think we've often, particularly this is actually one of the things that's that offends me about where Silicon Valley venture capital has gone, it has focused more and more on fiscal value or financial value as opposed to economic value, which has a much broader base and is a much more sustainable thought. And I think that's something we need to also think about. Well, we've touched on a lot and that was our aim. Um, it's been really fascinating to hear your, your comments, Mark. I'm gonna ask you for sort of a final wrap up comment, but just while you do that, I'm gonna give my own personal thoughts. Um, the first thing is in the chat, I've put a little link to a podcast I've been doing for three years. And this episode is gonna become an, one of those um, 250 interviews with inspiring people. So if you enjoyed this interview, then I'm mainly doing long form in-depth interviews with people about their lives and what it is that motivates them. So have a look at that. Um, yeah, the, the other thing, I guess the key takeaway for me is really, I guess, just thinking, and this is hard to do for a lawyer, so I'll admit that, um, you know, just getting beyond the conceptions like intellectual property. It's so easy for us to talk in using language that we're familiar with. 
But I really like the approach that we've had today of talking about intellectual capital, about maybe questioning the assumptions about how that's monetized, how it's protected, and maybe actually pushing the boat out here in New Zealand to say collaboration, innovation, this is something that we could actually do really well here. And we could actually model this to the rest of the world. And I'm not meaning that in an airy fairy, yeah, that's such a nice theory thing. I'm actually thinking we could actually do this. Like it actually feels achievable to me. And this whole week it's been, it's amazing to see the variety of content, the variety of speakers. What would it look like if each of us collaborated with one other person that we're meeting through these Zoom calls? I just think there's huge unlocked potential. And if, if EHF could become seen as the model of collaboration and innovation, of open dialogue, sharing, connectedness, like what a wonderful legacy that would be. Um, leaving aside the practical, how much money has this business made? You know, the, the, these are bigger concepts that we're talking about. It's about thinking intergenerationally how do we come together and work towards a better good, a future that we actually want to live in? Um, so that's kind of my final thoughts. Um, Mark, have you got anything that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I, I just want to, I want to sort of build on that because I think one of the things we often get trapped in is this idea that the financial outcome is the goal. And my view is the financial outcome is, is not the, it's the, dependent variable to use a math term not the independent variable it's not the thing you aim to aim for it's what you get as an outcome if you do everything else right um, years ago I used to get in these arguments about customer about customers I said look if we treat the customers well and we build what they want and we do all these things right we'll make money but if we focus on making money we're probably going to screw the customers and then we're actually not going to do well and unfortunately that you see that in a lot of businesses and so here I think we have to separate the input of how do we want to do things well? How do we want to include people? How do we want to create intellectual capital? And we'll, if we do that in the right way, we will get a great financial outcome. That just will happen. And there's more comments in the chats, which are awesome to see. I'm going to save them because I don't want to lose them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. One thing I'd like to suggest, I'm not sure if there's an appropriate Slack channel, but if there isn't, why don't we set one up that's, that's about collaboration or that's a, you know, that, that takes some of the ideas that we've talked about here? Because you could then go into it maybe and type, hey, I'm, I'm writing a paper about X, Y, Z, and then somebody else might come in and say, well, I've always wanted to do that. Let's work together because, you know, fostering the, um, the, the ability to connect easily is something that we could do with Slack and, and what this, what we all represent, I think. Yeah. And also like some of the comments there, just linking back to the spiritual side and that session yesterday that I was on as well. And I agree, it is something that's a bit different here. We're talking about deeper things. And the way I like to think of it is paradigm shifts of thinking that we're actually moving from an older way of thinking where people thought, if you want to do good, you set up a charity. If you want to make money, you set up a business to a new way of thinking, which is if you want to do good, you can actually do that by setting up a business and actually having great impact through that. And I think if you look around the world, you see many examples of this paradigm shift happening, whether it's the B Corps movement, impact investing, social enterprise. These are all examples 
um, of an outworking of a shift of the way of thinking. And I think our conversation has somehow, I didn't actually intend this, so this is awesome. It's actually captured in on this thread of going beyond the individual, beyond what one person can create to have a more collaborative mm -hmm. way of approaching it. So um, Mark, thank you. On behalf of everybody who's listening, we really appreciate your thoughts. Um, thank you, thank you, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that session. And if you did, then don't forget there's about 250 other episodes in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Mm -hmm.